pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in Amos chapter number 9. And, of course, uh, tonight we are concluding our chapter-by-chapter chapter, uh, series or study in the book of Amos. We've been uh, going chapter-by-chapter, chapter, hitting every verse in uh, the book of Amos. And, of course, you may or may not know this. I think most of you probably know this. But one of uh, my goals and one of our goals here at Verity Baptist Church is to preach through every verse of the Bible. And uh, these Bible studies are kind of helping us get there. So finishing Amos, the book of Amos today gets us one step uh, closer to that. And uh, I, I always like to, uh, you know, remind everyone the journey that we, we've been on when we started this church 12 years ago, that first Sunday night, I, uh, of course, that first Sunday morning, I preached a sermon about uh, the word verity. But that first Sunday night, I began preaching through Genesis chapter number one. And, uh, and in the last 12 years, we have gone together verse by verse through the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Esther, Job, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Matthew, we're working on Luke, uh, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, and James. So that's a, a lot of books of the Bible that we've studied together. We still have... A lot to go, uh, but we're, we're making our way there. So I'm glad that you are with us, and I encourage you to, con of course, continue to be with us uh, to all of the church services as we study the Bible. Uh, tonight, we have Amos chapter number 9, and like I said, we'll be finishing up this book tonight. And I'll, I'll go ahead and kind of just by, by way of, of introduction let you know that the chapter is divided into two parts. Uh, the first part should be fairly familiar to you because it's what the entire book of Amos has been about, and it's about the judgment of God, of course, and, um, and, and we're going to look at that. And then the book ends, if you remember when we started nine weeks ago in the book of Amos, I told you, I gave you an outline of the entire book, and I told you that at, right at the very end, Amos is a pretty negative book, but right at the very end, the last few verses, and we're, we're going to spend some time on it tonight um, there's just a glimpse of hope that Amos gives, and, uh, and we see the restoration. So you could divide this chapter into two sections, the judgment of God and then the restoration of God. And let's begin tonight by looking at the first section, the judgment of God. And there's four thoughts regarding the judgment of God that we can find in the first four verses. And if you want to jot these down, I always encourage you to jot things down as we study the Bible together. Uh, let, me, let me say this as well. If you remember, the book of Amos is divided into different sections. And we are finishing up the book of Amos, but we're in the last section of the book, which means that from chapters 7 through 9, there's five visions that God gave the prophet Amos. We saw three of those visions in chapter 9. If you remember, we saw the grasshoppers and the fire and the plumb line. And then in chapter 8, we saw the fourth vision, which was the basket of the summer fruit. And then tonight, we'll see the fifth and final vision here in chapter 9. And it's right there in verse number 1. Amos says, I saw, and of course, this is referring to the, a vision that he had. He says, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar. So the fifth and final vision is a vision of the Lord himself standing upon the altar. And I want you to notice that little phrase, altar, the word altar there. And this is indicating a place of worship. Of course, all throughout the Old Testament, the altar was a place where sacrifices would be made unto the Lord. It's a place of worship. It's a religious place. And as far as what altar is being referred to here, uh, it's hard to tell. I've noticed that most people assume 
that it is the altar of the Lord, uh, which would be in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and I'm not saying it's not. It, it, it may very well be. Uh, but if you remember, Amos was a prophet from the southern uh, kingdom of Judah who had traveled up to the northern kingdom of Israel. We are at a time in the history of the Old Testament in, in which we have a divided kingdom. The nation of Israel has been divided into two, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Amos is a prophet from the southern kingdom who has gone up to the northern kingdom. The, the temple is in the southern kingdom, and he is preaching to people in the northern kingdom. We've also seen in the book of Amos that Amos has been rebuking altars that they had made in different cities in the northern kingdom that were idolatrous altars or altars that they should not have been worshiping at. So what altars being referred to here, I'm not 100% sure. If I had to guess, I would say that it's an altar that they have made in the northern kingdom. Some people believe it's maybe the altar of, of the Lord in the southern kingdom, and that may be so. Uh, either way, the point is the same, and it is this, that he saw the Lord standing upon the altar, meaning that he is standing at a place that they consider a place of worship, and he said, smite the lintel of the door. Now, I want you to notice that word lintel there, and uh, the, I'll just give you the definition. A lintel is a beam that is usually placed above windows and doors uh, the lintel's main job is to support the load from the structure above it. Both doors and windows are not constructed to structurally withstand massive loads by themselves. So the lintels are, are used to help uh, carry that load. Lintels are mainly found in masonry or brick structures. And what God is saying here, as Amos sees this vision of the Lord standing upon an altar, which altar it is, we're not 100% sure, but it is a place that they would consider a place of religion or a place of worship. He's in some sort of a, a building where they have an altar. He's standing upon the altar, and he said, smite the lintel of the door, referring to the beam that is placed above the door in order to hold the weight. And he says that the post may shake. So he's referring to the fact that he wants to bring the building down. He's wanting to hit the beam and cause the entire post to shake. And then notice what he says there. He says, and cut them in the head, all of them, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be uh, delivered. So let me just give you some, some thoughts here. The first one, and if you want to write this down, you can. What we see, what, what we see in, the, in, those, in the first four verses of Amos chapter 9 is some things about God that uh, go against contrary, uh, they're contrary to popular belief. There are some things that people believe about God, and they're either wrong or they're, they're, they're partially wrong. And there are some things that we see here uh, that go contrary to what most people think about God. And the first is this, that contrary to popular belief, uh, you don't get to come to God however you want. Today, we live in this society that says, you know, it doesn't matter how you worship God. Uh, you, can, you can worship Him at church, or you can skip church and go on a hike and just worship, worship Him in nature, or you can just whatever, do it however you want. But the Bible does not teach that. And here we see this point. These people, I believe, they had set up an altar, because if you remember, we saw in earlier chapters that uh, there were certain cities that were being preached against because they had set up altars in those cities, and they were wrong to do that. 
And what God is telling these people is that you don't get to just put an altar wherever you want. You don't get to just come and worship me however you want. He says, here's what I think about your altar. He said, I'm going to smite the lintel of the door that the post may shake. I'm going to destroy your so-called place of worship because contrary to popular belief, you and I don't get to come to God however we want. Now, keep your place there in Amos chapter 9. That's obviously our text for tonight. But go with me real quickly to the book of John, John chapter 4. These are familiar verses, but I want you to see them real quickly. John chapter number 4 in the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter number 4. And look, we can pick on the liberals and we can pick on, on all the, the, the just hyper charismatic liberals out there and all their weird worship and rock concerts. But the truth is, even in a church like this, you, you find people who, they'll never say it out loud, but in their minds they think, well, I know the Bible says X, Y, and Z, but I'm going to do this, and I think God will be fine with that. And look, you have no right to decide what you think God's going to be fine with. The only right you and I have is to just say yes, sir, to God and whatever God says. We don't get to just decide, well, I'm going to just offer this to the Lord and I think he'll like it. No, God tells you exactly what it is that he wants from us. In John chapter 4 and verse 23, we see this idea. The Bible says, but the hour cometh and now is, and now is, notice, when, I want you to notice this little phrase, the true worshipers shall worship the Father. Now, why does it say the true worshipers? There's a reason why it says the true worshipers is because there's a lot of people out there who are worshiping, but they're not true worshipers. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father, notice, in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Who is the Father seeking to worship Him? Those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So it's not enough to go to a religious place and feel emotional and, 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 and feel like, oh, that, that felt so great, and that felt so good, I was really in the spirit. No, 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 you have to worship God in both in spirit and in truth. So make sure that the way you're worshiping God, the songs that you're singing to God, the Bible that's being read, the things that are being preached are actually uh, uh, things that are considered to be truth by God. And you and I, we don't just get to decide, well, I think we're just going to give this to God. I think God will like this. No, no, no. God tells us exactly what he wants. And he's telling these people, here's what I think about your altar. Here's what I think about your place of worship. I'm going to destroy it. God is a God of judgment, and you and I don't get to come to God however we want and offer Him whatever we want. We talked about this recently in the judgment series. I won't have you turn here. I'll just read this for you. You go back to Amos chapter 9 if you would. But if you remember, we saw this in Genesis 4.4. You don't have to turn here. I'll just read it. Genesis 4.4. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. You know, God is not going to accept your offering if it goes against what he has asked. And here's all I'm saying, and it's a simple point, but it's the point that's being made in Amos, is that contrary to popular belief, God is not a public school teacher who's going to accept whatever work. 
He's not just going to let you pass the test whether you knew the material or not. No, God is going to require that you come to him in the appropriate way. And he says, let me tell you what I think about your altar. And he destroys it. You and I don't get to come to God however we want. We come to God by the way that God has told us to approach him. We worship him both in spirit and in truth. Notice there in verse 1, we see the second thought. We saw already, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, smite the lintel of the door that the post may shake. And then he says this, and I want you to notice it. And cut them in the head. This is God speaking. And this is what God says. This is what your God says, if your God is the God of the Bible. And cut them in the head, all of them, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. And this God that you and I are reading about right now, this God, the God of Amos, who is speaking through Amos, who said, cut them in the head, all of them. Cut them in the head. I will slay the last of them with the sword. You know, you're not going to read about this God, and you're not going to hear about this God anywhere but in the Bible. You're not going to meet this God on Christian radio. You're not going to meet this God on Christian television. You're not going to meet this God at the average fun center, rock concert, mega church. They're not going to talk about this God, this God of judgment. Because all, all people want to, and look, contrary to popular belief, we said, number one, you don't get to come to God however you want. But number two, contrary to popular belief, God is love, but he's also holy, and he's also just, and therefore he must punish sin. See, today people, they only want to talk about the fact that God is love. And look, don't misunderstand me. God is love. In fact, let's look at it. Go, go to 1 John chapter 4. If you start at the end of the book of, uh, of the Bible, at the book of Revelation, you go backwards. You have Jude, 3 uh, John, 2 John, 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. God is love. But that's all people want to talk about. 1 John 4, 8. He that loveth. Not knoweth not God. Notice the words, for God is love. I just want you to notice that little phrase. God is love. Verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. Look at it again. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. So there's no doubt about it. God, one of the attributes of God, one of the moral attributes of God is that God is love. But I want you to notice something else. Go to Psalm, Psalm 99. If you open your Bible, just right in the center, you'll more than likely fall in the book of Psalms right after, uh, and I'd like you to get to Psalm 99. Psalm 99, look at verse 9. Now we saw 1 John 4, 8. I mean, one of the most quoted phrases in all of the liberal churches, right? God is love. And I'm not mocking it. That's in the Bible. God is love. But I want you to notice that that's not the only, that's not the sole attribute of God. God is bigger and greater than just one attribute. God is love. Yes. Psalm 99 verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God, notice this phrase, is holy. Amen. So not only is, can we say that this is true, God is love, but we can also say this is true, God is holy. And because God is love, and because God is holy, both of these must be balanced out. Keep your place in Psalms. We're going to come back to it. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Keep your place in Psalms. Go to Deuteronomy 32. 
At the beginning of the Bible, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Do me a favor, when you get to Deuteronomy, keep your place there as well. We're going to come back to Psalms, and we're going to come back to Deuteronomy. So I'd like you to be able to get to both of those quickly. Deuteronomy 32, look at verse 4. Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. Notice what the Bible says. A God of truth. So God is love. God is holy. But you know, you could also say God is true. I mean, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. God of truth and without iniquity. Notice these words. Just. Who's just? God is just. God is truth. God is just. And right is he. So we see the attributes of God here. God is truth. God is just. God is right. God is holy. And along with that, God is love. But why is it that the only thing that gets preached at most churches is God is love? I'll tell you why. Because they have an agenda to not show you the true character of God. Because God is love. But he's also a God of judgment. He's a God of holiness. And contrary to popular belief, Though God is love, and that's true, he's also holy, he's also just, he's also truth, he's also right, and as a a result, he must punish sin. So, when you actually open up a King James Bible and begin to read the Word of God, you get introduced to the God of the Bible who may be different than the God that you grew up knowing about. Because the same God that said, come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden. The same God that that said, I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. That same God said, cut them in the head, all of them, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. Now you can say, well, there was a different God from the Old Testament, New Testament. Or you can just say, hey, that's the God of the Bible. He's a God of love, and he's a God of justice. He's a God of love, and he's a God of wrath. You say, well, what can we learn from that? I don't know what you learn from it, but what I learn from it is this. I'm glad that when I meet God, I'll meet him as my Savior, not as my judge. Because I don't want to meet this God as a judge, cut them in the head, all of them, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. I'd rather be on his side. So we see, number one, they... These thoughts of judgment here, contrary to popular belief, you don't get to come to God however you want. Contrary to popular belief, God is love, but he's also holy and just and must punish sin. Let me give you a third one, number three. Look, look, look at verse one. We haven't even got out of verse one yet, but we're going to finish the book of Amos, I promise. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, Smite the lintel of the door, that the post may shake and cut them in the head, all of them, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. And then notice this. And we're going to look at the next several verses here because they all kind of make the same point. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away. So he's saying, you can run. When I was preaching through the book of Jonah, I I used this statement. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. And that's really what Amos is saying here. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. And he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Now notice the point that's being made here. Amos chapter 9 verse 2. Though they dig into hell, then shall my hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, then shall I bring them down. 
And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, and of course Carmel is a, mount, a high mountain there in the northern kingdom of Israel. And what God is saying, he's saying, look, you can go down to hell and I'll find you there. You can go up to heaven and I'll find you there. He says, you can hide at the top of the highest mountain and I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight, notice what he says in the last part of verse 3, in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent and he shall bite them. Doesn't that kind of remind you of Jonah? Uh, we obviously, it wasn't a serpent, it was a whale, but the fact that God can... can he, he said, you can get to the bottom of the sea, and I've got uh, creatures that can take care of you there. Verse 4, And though they go into captivity before their enemies, then shall I command the sword, and it shall slay them, and I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Now, I want to point out to you just real quickly that these verses, the last part of verse 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, they're very similar to another famous passage of Scripture that teaches us about the uh, omnipresence of God. Because I want you to see it again. Amos 9, verse 2. Though they dig into hell, then shall my hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, then will I bring them down. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, then will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. Now let's compare that to Psalm 139. Go to Psalm 139, if you kept your place there in the book of Psalms. Psalm 139. And Psalm 139 is a great passage. Obviously, this can be proven from many places in Scripture, but Psalm 139 and Amos chapter 9 are both great passages on the omnipresence of God. We believe in that one of the uh, supernatural attributes. We've talked about the moral attributes of God. He's love. He's just. He's holy. But also, we see the supernatural attributes of God. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's immutable. The omnipresence of God is taught here in Amos 9 and Psalm 139. Notice the similarities. Psalm 139, verse 5. Thou hast beset the word beset means to surround. Thou hast beset me behind and before. Why don't you notice what the psalmist is saying? You young people should listen to me. Amen. The Bible says that God has beset, he has surrounded you behind and before. You say, oh, uh, I, I, my, my mom's not looking. My dad's not there. My pastor's not there. Well, you might look over your shoulder and your pastor's not there. You might look over your shoulder, your dad's not there, your mom's not there, and no other adult is there. But you know who is there? God. Amen. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high. I cannot attain it. Look at verse 7. Whither, the word means to what place, whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence, we're talking about the omnipresence of God. Omni is a Latin word that means all or all things. Presence obviously means the state of being present or being there. The fact that God is everywhere at once. Whither shall I go from thy spirit or whither shall I flee from thy presence? Look at verse 8. Tell me if this sounds like the book of Amos. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there.
there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Now that can be a blessing to you, or it can be a hindrance to you. When you find yourself walking through the shadow of death, you need not fear, for I am with thee. But when you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, (laughs) God's there too. Because we see the omnipresence of God and the fact that Amos is teaching us that God is everywhere. God is, uh, it doesn't matter where you go. You can go to the tops of the mountains. You can go to the depths of the sea. You can go to hell. Go back to Amos 9. Though they dig into hell, then shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to the heaven, then shall I bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. Uh, though they go in the bottom of the sea, thence I will command the serpent, and he shall bite them. Hey, you can't get away from God. So here's the third statement, the application. Contrary to popular belief, uh, what we've been learning is that you don't get to come to God however you want. God is love, that's true, but he's also holiness and just, therefore he must punish sin. And um, here's statement number three. Contrary to popular belief, you can't just ignore God and think that he will ignore you. Do you understand what I just said? Because oftentimes people, they, they, they take this belief, they, they, and they might not say, say it's a belief, but they live their lives this way. They think, if I just leave God alone, he'll leave me alone. If I just ignore God, he'll just ignore me. But let me tell you something, God is going to get all up in your business, whether you like it or not. You cannot have in this agnostic Uh, a view of God. The agnostic view is a view that, it's it's complicated what they believe, but it pretty much is a view that they don't know that there is a God, but if there is a God, then we can't know him. He doesn't want to know us. And it's really this, this belief that if there is a God, then God created us, and he kind of put the universe into motion, but then he just left us alone. He doesn't care about us, and we shouldn't care about him. And, and it's this idea that if, if there is a God, then it's not possible for us to know him or for him to care about us. But let me tell you something. That is not the God of the Bible. And you can go ahead and ignore God and live like he's not there, but God sees you and God will judge you and you can't just ignore God and think that he's going to ignore you. Because isn't that with all the, I mean, most of the people we meet out there, when we're out soul winning, I mean, how many people are we knocking on their doors and they're just saying, I'm an atheist, I don't believe that God exists. I mean, we get a lot of them, but it's not the vast majority of them. The vast majority of people believe there's a God, but yet they live like there is no God. They, 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 yeah, there's a God, but you know, I'm just doing what I want. I'm not really uh, into him, and he's not really into me. That's not the God of the Bible. You can't just ignore God and think that he's going to ignore you. We all have a day of judgment, a reckoning with God. And God is very interested in you, and he's interested in how you're living your life. So contrary to popular belief, you can't run away from God. You, you, can't, you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. He is interested in you, and he will judge you for what you are doing. Number four, look at Amos chapter 9 and verse 4. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword, and it shall slay them. I want you to notice this, the last phrase of verse 4. 
And I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Here's the fourth statement. Contrary to popular belief, God is against some people. See, people think, oh, God's good, and God is good. That's one of the attributes of God. And God only does good, and God only does good. Everything God does is good. But in that, you have to understand that because everything that God does is good, sometimes he doesn't do you good. Sometimes he does evil. You say, well, how can that be? (laughs) Here's what you don't understand. Sometimes God doing evil to you and to me is good. It's called tough love. And people often have a hard time understanding that, but the people who do not understand that are simply enablers. God is not an enabler. He He says, I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Go back to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28. And look, sometimes we as parents, sometimes we as, as leaders have to exercise tough love. And I, will, and I will tell you, I understand it's difficult, but I will tell you, you are never proving your love to somebody more than when you are dealing with them in the way that must be dealt with that they might think it's negative, a discipline, some, that you're doing them wrong. It's easy. It's easy to enable. It's easy. Look, it's easy to be Joel Osteen and just get up and say, everything's fine, everything's great, you're awesome, look at you. I mean, you think I'd have as many, you know, death threats if I, if I just got up and said, everything's fine, no problem, whatever you're, yeah, go for it. Just put money in the offering plate. But that's not the God of the Bible. Let me give you... An example here in Deuteronomy 28, look at verse 15. That's actually the the context, the the example of the people that Amos is speaking to. Deuteronomy 28, 15. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Deuteronomy 28, 15. This is God speaking to, to the children of Israel. To observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Because remember, in the book of Deuteronomy, God gave this long list of of blessings. He said, if you follow me, if you do what I've told you to do, if you hearken unto my word, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do these things for you. And then he gives an even longer list. The, the, The list on the curses is like multiple times bigger. And he says, but if you don't listen, I'm going to do all these things to curse you. Look at verse 63, Deuteronomy 28, 63. And it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoice over you to do you good. Please read this. As the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught, and you shall be plucked uh, from off the land where thou goest to possess it. You say, that, I, well, that's kind of harsh. But the reason we think that that's harsh is because we have been lied to by our society and we grew up in kindergarten class and in after school programs being told by some big purple dinosaur that you're special and that you could do no wrong 
and because you're special, you should be given everything. Let me tell you something. That's not true. <laughs> I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, but I'm here to tell you something. Not only are you not special, you're a sinner. You deserve to die and go to hell. And the only thing that's special about me and special about you is God. Is our connection to God, is our fellowship with God, is our salvation. So you say, well, God says, God wants to bless you. And God says, I will bless you. In fact, I will rejoice over you to do you good. And please listen to me. Because some of you have been coming to church like this. And you've been coming now for many months or maybe many years. And you've experienced the blessing of God upon your life. And it's starting to get to your head a little bit. And you're thinking, man, everything I touch is gold. And just God is blessing. And look how my job is going. And look how this is going. And look how that is going. And you're experiencing the blessing of God. But don't forget that that blessing is there because of obedience. The blessings of God hinge on obedience. And the moment you decide, I'm going to get filled with pride. I'm going to quit soul winning. I'm going to quit Sunday night church. I'm going to quit Wednesday night church. I'm going to quit reading my Bible. The same God that rejoiced over you to do you good will rejoice over you to destroy you. Because God's not blessing you because you're special. God's blessing you because you're obeying him. And when you stop obeying him, the same Lord God will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught, and you shall be plucked off from the land. And over the last 12 years of ministry, my wife and I have seen this so clearly in the lives of people. And sometimes I want to shake people and say, are you an idiot? How do you not understand when you're in church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, when you're reading the Bible, when you're praying, when you're soul winning, when you're right with God, when your heart's tender to God, your marriage is good, finances are good, you get a raise of the job, then you quit on God, you get fired. Then you quit on God, your marriage goes to hell. Then you quit on God, everything starts falling apart. And I think to myself, are you a moron? It wasn't you. It was God's blessing upon your obedience. And as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught. And you shall be plucked off from the land whether thou goest to possess it. And if God said that to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, let me tell you something. He's no respecter of persons. He's, he's, that goes for you and me as well. So never get to the place where you think like, oh man, I must be hot stuff. Look how God's blessing me. No, no, no. It's, it's God's hot stuff. <laughs> and as long as I stay on the right side of the equation where he's blessing me, that's good. The moment I decide to cross this way, the same God who rejoiced over you to do you good will rejoice over you. I just love the phrase there. So the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you. Go back to Amos chapter 9. In verses 5 through 10, we have a little bit of a transition. And we're going to go through the verses, but I want to get to the end of this chapter because the end of the chapter is really special. We get a glimpse of the millennial reign. Amos chapter 9 and verse 5, And the Lord God of hosts is he that toucheth the land, and it shall melt. And all that dwell therein shall mourn, and it shall rise up holy like a flood, and shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. And we saw it in a previous chapter, this idea of the flood coming up. And especially in end times uh, literature, it comes up here in the Bible. Verse 6, it is he that buildeth his stories in heaven, 
and I don't have time to, to get into this, and have founded his troops in the earth, he that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name, of course. He talks about he that buildeth his stories in heaven. And the idea of stories in heaven is layers. And I don't have time to get into it. We've done studies on it in the past. But the Bible talks about different layers of heaven. Remember, Paul was caught up to the third heaven. And the Bible tells us that we've got different layers of heaven. Of course, the atmosphere and then the space. And then what we usually refer to as heaven where God lives, the kingdom of God. Verse 7, are ye not as the children of Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel? And the point that he's making there is he's saying, you're acting like a bunch of heathen. And you're, you're acting like the Gentiles. And people like to pluck out Amos 9-7, you know, these, these racist fundamentalists <laughs> like to pluck out Amos 9-7 and make some big deal about the Ethiopians there or whatever. But it's really stupid to do that because he, later on in the chapter, we're going to look at it, God talks well about the Gentiles. So again, it wasn't that he was against the Ethiopians. It was their position when they were out of, when they were not believers, then they were heathen. But those same Ethiopians could get saved. You ever heard of the Ethiopian that got saved in the book of Acts? And, and he's a hero. So people like to make a big deal about that. And by the way, it says, are you not as children of the Ethiopians unto me? He doesn't say, are you not as the children of black people? Because that's what they try to make it, you know, these races. Oh, children of Israel, saith the Lord, have I not brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt? And the children of Kaphtar from the Syrians from Kerr. Look at verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. And this goes again with that idea that God is everywhere. God knows and sees everything. Behold, and here's what he's telling the children of Israel. He's telling them, I've been working with you, but I've been working with the Gentiles as well. He brings up the Ethiopians and he says, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. Here's what Proverbs says. You have to turn there to Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. He says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord uh, God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saying that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. Verse 9. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. Like as corn is sifted in a sieve, uh, yet shall not the last grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. So again, the idea is that there's judgment. And here's what he's telling, and I don't have time to get into it because I really need to get into the last part of this chapter, but what he's telling the children of Israel is the point that I was just making, and it is this, you are no different than the Ethiopians. And he's not bashing the Ethiopians, he's bashing the nation of Israel. What he's telling them is, you were not blessed because some inherent good in you. You were blessed because you were given the oracles of God because of your adherence to the word of God. He said, and I will sift you among the nations. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent. He said, I don't care if you're part of the nation of Israel. If you're a sinner and you think that I'm not going to judge you, I will, you will be judged. And then in verse 11, we get a transition. The entire book of Amos from chapter 1 all the way to uh, verse 10 of, of Amos 9 has been about the judgment of God. It's been hard preaching. It's been very negative. In verses 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, just the last part of this, uh, this chapter, 
we get the positive, really the only positive in the entire book. So we see the judgment of God, and then we transition to the restoration of God. And Amos gives the children of Israel a glimpse to a time in which God will restore them. But I want you to understand that the restoration is a referring to not a time that he would restore the physical people of Israel that are living at the time of Amos, but he's looking forward to a time known as the millennial reign of Christ. And I'll just prove that to you here uh, real quickly. And we see these characteristics of the millennial reign of Christ. Amos 9 and verse 11, notice what he says. He says, in that day. Now remember, I, I told you, whenever you see that phrase, in that day, think end times. Because in that day is a reference to what day? A coming day. In that day, he says, will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen? Because the tabernacle of David, remember God made a covenant with David that one of the seed of David, that a descendant of David would sit on the throne of Jerusalem for forever. And of course, we're coming to the point where that, that's going to go away and it's not around anymore. Because of the fact that the northern kingdom is going to be taken to captivity, the southern kingdom is going to be taken to captivity, and there will be no son of David sitting on a throne. There is no son of David sitting on a throne right now. And sometimes people say, well, that then, then God lied or God failed because he promised David that, a son, that one of his sons would sit on a throne forever, that his descendants would be on thrones. But here, what uh, Amos is telling the people, he's saying, look, northern kingdom, you're about to go into captivity. The southern kingdom is going to follow you uh, uh, just later on. They're going to go into captivity. But I want you to know that there's a day coming. In that day, will I raise up the tabernacle of David? He says, there's coming a day and he's talking about the millennial reign in which he will reestablish the kingly line of David and a son of David will sit upon the throne. He says, in that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof and I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old. Now, what is he talking about? Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Real quickly, you've got to move quickly. If, if you go backwards from Amos, you have Amos, Joel, Hosea, Daniel, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, first of the major prophets. Do me a favor, you can lose your place everywhere else and just keep your place in Isaiah because we're going to come back real quickly just in this last little section. Isaiah chapter 11. We see the first characteristic of the millennial reign here, and it is the fact that the millennial reign will reestablish the kingly line of David. Isaiah 11 verse 9. Here we have another passage about the millennial reign Notice what it says. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Wouldn't that be a great day? Look at verse 10. And don't miss it. You see it? In that day. See the consistency of the Bible? And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse. There shall be a root of Jesse which will stand up for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek. And, it shall, and his rest shall be glorious. Now, what is the root of Jesse? Well, who was Jesse? Jesse was the father of David. So in that day, Amos says, I will raise up the tabernacle of David. In that day, there shall be a root of Jesse. What is he talking about? Talking about the fact that in that day, at the millennial reign of Christ, there's going to be a physical throne and a physical king is going to sit on that throne and that king will be a descendant and a son 
of David. Amen. Who is that? Luke 1.32. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it for you. Notice what he says. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. So we see a characteristic of the millennium. And it is that there will be a reestablishing of the kingly line of David. That's what we see in verse 11. Notice verse 12. Keep your place in Isaiah. Go back to Amos chapter 9. Notice Amos chapter 9 verse 12. That they may possess, I want you to notice this, the remnant of Edom. Edom is a nation of Gentiles. And all of the heathen, all those Ethiopians we were talking about, right? Which are, notice what it says. In that day, right? In that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David. Verse 12, in that day that they may possess. He said, I'm going to raise up the tabernacle of David. I'm going to give a kingdom to the son of David, uh, uh, the throne of his father David, the son of the highest, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathens, which are, notice what it says, called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. So here in Amos 9, we're being told that there's going to come a day when the millennial kingdom of the coming son of David is going to not only possess the nation of Israel, but it's going to possess the remnants of Edom and of all the heathen. It's going to possess the lands of the heathen. Now you say, is it going to overtake the heathens? We're going to take the heathens like the Crusades or something. We're going to send a bunch of soldiers and get all the heathen off, get all the Muslims off. Is that what's going to happen at the millennial reign? No, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen, which, notice what it says, are called by my name. The millennial reign will be a time not only that will reestablish the kingly line of David, but number two, it will be a time in which the, the millennial reign will receive Gentiles as the people of God. Amen. When it says the remnant of Eden and of all the heathens, what is that talking about? It's talking about you. It's talking about me. The fact that the Gentiles are going to be received and accepted into that kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to Isaiah. Look at it from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. Remember Isaiah 11 was a passage on the millennial reign. Isaiah 11, verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, right, the son of David, which will stand for an ensign of the people. Notice what the Bible says. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. The Gentiles are going to be seeking to that kingdom of David. Verse 11, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. Who's he going to recover? Which shall be left. Notice what he says. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. What is being described here? The fact that the millennial kingdom of God is going to be made up of heathen or Gentile people. He's going to recover the remnant of his people, and he gives all these heathen nations, Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the islands of the sea. So we see that the millennial reign will reestablish the kingly line of David. We see that the millennial reign will receive Gentiles as the people of God. And then thirdly, keep your place there in Isaiah. Go back to Amos chapter 9. Keep your place in Isaiah. We're going to come back to it. Number three, Amos 9.13. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper... And the treader of grapes, him that soweth seeds, 
and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. What is this referring to? I love the, 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 the way that it's described. It's, it, it's really painting a picture with words. Instead of him just telling you, he paints this word picture. Look at it in your mind's eye. What is he trying to tell us? Verse 13. Behold, the days come, referring to the millennial reign, saith the Lord. He doesn't just tell us what's going to happen. He paints a picture. He says, it's going to be like this, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper. So what's the plowman? The plowman is the guy who's plowing the land, right? Getting it ready to, to, to put seed. It's time to harvest. We got to put the seed down so that we can reap. He says, there's going to come a day when the earth is going to be so fruitful that the guy that gets out there to begin to plow the land, he's going to run into the guy, the reaper, who's still bringing in the harvest. Amen. It's going to be so fruitful that the guys harvesting, aren't going to, they're not going to have time to get it all done. But when they're still working to get all the harvest in, the plowman's already starting to plow for the next harvest. The plowman's walking up saying, hey, can you get this finished up? We got, we got to... We got to plan for the next harvest. They're like, we haven't even finished the first harvest. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, notice, and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seeds. Same example, different illustration. The guy that goes out to collect the grapes so that he can tread the grapes, you know, take his shoes off and whatever that you do with grapes. That guy is going to run into the guy that's sowing the seed. They're going to be bumping into each other. The harvest is going to be so plentiful. What does this tell us? It tells us that the millennial reign will not only reestablish the kingly line of David, will not only receive Gentiles as the people of God, but the millennial reign will remove the curse from the earth. Because God's original plan was for this earth to be a fruitful place. You don't have to turn here. You go to Isaiah 24. Let me read to you from Genesis 3. You know the story, but let me read it to you. Genesis 3, 17. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. That should be a lesson for all you husbands out there. <laughs> and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Remember the punishment for Adam? Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. God cursed the ground for Adam's sake. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth. And it became this difficult process to get the land to provide the sustenance needed for mankind. But God says... There's coming a day when he's going to remove that curse. Because right now the earth is under a curse. I just want you to look at the first part of Isaiah 24, 6. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth. This earth is under a curse. Not just the ground, all of us. The whole world is groaning. But God says there's coming a day, it's called the millennial reign, well, I will remove the curse from the earth. And the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. He says it's going to be a fruitful time. It's going to be a bountiful time. It's going to be a time where it's going to be easy to, to produce fruit and to have what's needed for, our, for sustenance. And let me give you the last one. Go back to Amos chapter 9. Keep your place there in Isaiah. Amos chapter 9. 
We're talking about the restoration, the millennial reign. The millennial reign will reestablish the kingly line of David. The millennial reign will receive the Gentiles as the people of God. The millennial reign will remove the curse from the earth. And then lastly, let me just say it, okay? Don't judge me before I get done saying it. The millennial reign will restore the promised land. Some of you are getting nervous. Is he going dispensational? The millennial reign will restore the promised land to believing Israel. You say, what does that mean? Amos 9, look at verse 14. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel. And they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof, and they shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Now today you have all these Zionists who want to use these verses and try to apply it to the Antichrist unbelieving Jews in Israel today or to the Antichrist unbelieving Jews in Hollywood or San Francisco or New York or wherever. They try to apply it to the synagogue of Satan. But keep in mind, this is about the millennial reign. So what what is the Bible saying here? Go back to Isaiah chapter 11. Let me just show this to you. I've taught this before, but I just want to make sure you understand it. Isaiah 11, 10. Remember, we already saw that the millennial reign will receive Gentiles as the people of God. So it's going to be a reign of Gentiles. But it'll, it'll be a reign of Jews and Gentiles. Isaiah 11, verse 10. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, who are his people, which be left from Assyria, and from Egypt, and from Pathros, and from Cush, and from Elam, and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea, and he shall set up an ensign, the word ensign means like a banner, or a standard, or a flag, a sign, and will set up an ensign for the nations, So it's going to be a kingdom of nations and shall assemble the outcasts. Now, we already saw it's going to have people from Assyria, Egypt, all these heathen nations. But then he says in verse 12, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. You say, I don't understand. Well, here's what you need to get. Go to Matthew 19 and we're done. All right. Matthew chapter 19 and we'll, we'll, we'll finish up. First book in the New Testament. Who are these, this, these uh, uh, outcasts of Israel and the dispersed of Judah that are going to be given the land of Israel, the promised land, during the millennial reign? And here's, here's the point. The millennial reign will not only reestablish the kingly line of David, will not only receive the Gentiles as the people of God, will not only remove the curse from the earth, but it will also restore the promised land to believing Israel. You say, who are these people? They're Old Testament saints. They're Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're they're Moses and Joshua. They're David. They're the 144,000 that come down from heaven in the book of Revelation. They're the 12 apostles. Because this millennial reign is going to be a physical reign on this earth. And God is still going to have this earth divided by the kingdoms in which he divided it at the Tower of Babel. Look, Look at Matthew 19, verse 28. And Jesus said unto them, this is Jesus speaking to the 12 disciples, Verily I say unto you, 
that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. That's referring to the millennial reign. This is what Jesus told the disciples. Ye also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we know that the millennial reign is going to have a throne in Jerusalem in which Jesus Christ, the son of David, will sit upon the throne of David and rule the entire kingdom. But then the nation of Israel itself is going to be divided into the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles will sit upon 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And from that, we can kind of take the idea, since it'll be a worldwide kingdom full of nations and heathen nations included, that maybe the U.S. will have 50 thrones judging the 50 states of America. And, you know, I hope I get California. And, and, and the point is that we will be ruling and reigning with Christ. So Amos ends this very judgmental, very harsh, very angry book with a glimpse of hope and a glimpse of glory. He tells them, God is going to cut you in the head. God is going to bring down your altar. You don't get to come to God however you want. You don't get to do whatever you want. You can't just ignore God and think he's going to ignore you. God is against you. But he says, there's coming a day. In that day, he will reestablish the kingly line of David, receive Gentiles, remove the curse from the earth, and restore the promised land. You know, the application for you and I is this. Maybe you are backslidden. Maybe God's blessing is not upon your life. Maybe things are not going well in your life. Maybe you're not backslidden. Maybe you're Job and God is testing you or going through some difficult times. Let me tell you something. There's coming a day in which all that pain, all that sorrow, all of that will be removed. The curse will be removed and we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this book of Amos. And I thank you for a church that is excited to study the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. People that will show up on a Wednesday night, not for entertainment, but to study the Word of God. And Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to remember this book, remember the lessons we've learned here. And I pray you'd help us as we study other books of the Bible and continue to work our way through the Word of God. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're going to have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song. Just want to uh, remind you 